Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. Are given to me to speak would be ones that would give life to this congregation and to myself as well as we wrestle with one of the uh, the biggest truths in Scripture, what it is to be resurrected. Lord, I pray that you give us clarity to understand, ears to hear, and eyes to see how much you love us and the path that you'd have us walk. I pray that as we read Scripture, we would find ways that we're not aligned with your word, that you'd correct us. And Lord, in the ways that we are walking in stride with you, that you'd encourage us to do so even more. Above all else, Father, I pray you to be glorified as we hear your word and respond to it this morning in truth. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, my heading says, Sadducees asked, ask about the resurrection. So if you would stand for the reading of the word, starting in verse 23 and going through verse 33, just 10 verses this morning. That same day, the Sadducees came to him, those who say there is no resurrection, And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies and has no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us, and the first was married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh, after them, the woman died. So in the resurrection, therefore... Of the seven brothers, whose wife will she be? Because she married all of them. And Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Quote, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's a lot here, man, to try and tackle the idea of resurrection and the resurrected life in a short morning. I wanted to go all Southern Baptist and preach till three. Um, I didn't think it would be well received. So I did my best to take a very, very, very big theological truth and put it in Um, as concise a way as possible. I did not answer every question that this will raise, okay? Um, So we need to say that right off the bat. There are far more things about this topic than I can discuss in one morning. If you have questions, please come see me. I studied a lot of these questions. Uh, I might not have studied yours, but we can open scripture together and try and figure things out, okay? Uh, That said, I'm going to handle the basic truth here uh, with one uh, one minor addition, okay? Okay. Matthew, chapter 23, tells this story about the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. So this is how they taught us to remember it in seminary, okay? Um, The Pharisees were law keepers, so they were fair, you see, Um, okay? The Sadducees didn't have the hope of the resurrection, so they were sad, you see, okay? So there you go. If you have a problem remembering the Sadducees from the Pharisees, uh, there's kind of a blanket little joke to help you remember. Now... This passage starts off with, that same day, the Sadducees came to Jesus. That same day is what? 
The same day as the Pharisees and the Herodians came to him. So Jesus is walking along and the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him and they ask him this very tricky question. They try to entangle him and he just outlogics them and does wonderful Jesus conversation. And then he takes a few steps more and who happens to stumble across his path? The Sadducees. Bam! Right on the heels of his previous attack, the Sadducees are like, well, now it's our turn. We're going to move in for this coordinated attack. So it follows um, on the heels of the previous one, and the next one will be immediately on the heels of this. The Pharisees were religious leaders, law keepers loyal to God, not to Rome. Herodians were a Jewish group supportive of Rome. The Sadducees were a majority sect of the Jewish population. Now, in in Judaism, there were different uh, groups. You might all kind of say denominations, sects of, um, of Jewish people. The Sadducees were the majority sect in the Sanhedrin, the ruling judicial council of Jerusalem. This is their room in the temple. So you'd have the outer court where the women would be, and then you'd have the inner court where they would make the sacrifices. And off to the side of that, there was a little room, and it was a seat of 70 seats, okay? And it was where the Sanhedrin, the judicial government of the Jewish people, housed inside the temple, would do their law stuff. So if someone was accused of a crime, that's where they would go. The accused person would stand here. The high priest would sit here. And this comes into play later when uh, Jesus was illegally tried. He was brought before the, the council illegally in the middle of the night. Unheard of, shouldn't have been done. They broke all their own laws. Uh, needless to say, this is kind of where they met. The Sadducees were the majority sect, so they held the power in the judicial government. Okay, But they were the smallest of all of the Jewish sects. Okay. Um, they were politically and theologically liberal. This is important to know. Um, and their political views were unacceptable to the Pharisees because the Sadducees supported the Roman government like the Herodians did. So they didn't have a problem with paying taxes. But on the other hand, the Sadducees denied the resurrection, which the Pharisees believed in. Um, so they were sad, you see, because they had no hope of eternal life. Now, we've got to work that in as many times as possible. Um, The Sadducees had made a power-sharing deal with the Romans. And though they controlled the temple, in many ways, they were the most secular of all of the Jewish groups. So you have a secular, liberal, very small group of people who controlled the temple, believed in Rome's authority, and didn't believe in the resurrecting power of God. That's a problem for the Jewish nation, right? Um, Who should be following God fully. The only scriptures that the Sadducees would consider having authority in their life is the Pentateuch, the Mosaic Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, penta meaning five, so uh, tuch meaning uh, uh, book or canon uh, story, okay? So the first five books of the Bible uh, were the only ones that the Sadducees would say are valid. They denied anything else in the Old Testament, the prophets, all of those kinds of things. They said, That's not from God. We're not listening to that. Only the stuff written by Moses, the first five books. Inasmuch, they denied the immortality of the soul and the hope of the resurrection, and they didn't believe that God was in any way involved in the affairs of humanity. It's also very possible, based on their beliefs in some um, ancient um, writings, that they rejected the belief of angels. They did not believe that God worked in people's lives, that he was very distant and separated. Uh, They believed that, and they also didn't believe that God had angels that worked among uh, humankind doing the will of God. 
So when they posed this question to Jesus, it reflected their commitment to the Mosaic Pentateuch and the lack of resurrection hope. And the question they raised was designed to discredit Jesus among the population, most of whom um, believed in the resurrection of the dead. So they made a hypothetical situation, and they made it so extreme that they assumed there would be no answer to the question because resurrection was a myth after all. Um, the, uh, the, the skepticism of their question was transparent because of the unbelievable coincidences they had, and it was to show that the resurrection was ridiculous. It's kind of like those, um, those riddles that people ask, like, can God microwave a burrito so hot he can't touch it? And uh, those kinds of absurdities that people ask, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Um, those kinds of things. People ask those questions because they don't believe that God is the God of the impossible, that God is full of power, that God can do mighty things we can't conceive of. And so the Sadducees approached him with the very similar question. There was a law in the Mosaic Pentateuch. It's called the Leverite Law. And it said that if you were married and you died and you didn't have children, your wife would then be married to your brother and any children that they had would be in your line so that your family line wouldn't die off. This was the way that it was done. So um, they constructed this question. Listen, there were seven brothers. Oh, and they got married, the first guy, and then he died, and there were no children. So she married the second brother, but then he died, and there were no children. So she married the third brother, but he died, and there were no children. So she married the fourth brother, but he died. There were no children, so he married the, she married the fifth brother, but he died. No children. Sixth brother died. No children. Seventh brother died. No children. Do you see how absurd this sounds? Okay. Um, so then, then they, they set the trap. They asked the question. Well, supposing that happens, Jesus... Um, to which of the brothers will she be married to in heaven? Who will she belong to in heaven? How will it be in heaven? How are you going to work this out in this resurrection of yours, Jesus? Their view of the resurrection was crudely literalistic, as if resurrection life would be an exact replica of what we have today. Thank the Lord it is not. Okay. So Jesus answered them, and I love this. He doesn't mince words at all. What does he say? He says this. Jesus answered them, you're wrong. Just period. You're wrong. You did. Probably there was some emphasis under that of like, ah, oh, you're wrong. I mean, you should know better. You lead in the temple. You're wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Um, Jesus was declaring this. Um, that they didn't understand the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. In other words, they lacked head knowledge and heart knowledge of the things of God. Or they simply didn't know, and because they didn't know, they didn't believe. That's the modern translation. They didn't know, they didn't believe. The truth is that scripture teaches the reality of the resurrection and the power of God to create a much more wonderful world than we have right now. And frankly, probably a much more wonderful world than we can imagine with our minds. And Jesus wanted them and us to know that and go beyond knowledge to believing that. Because when you have knowledge and then you act on it, your belief is played out in your actions. 
So first, he quickly handles this absurd question because he wants it to get out of the way because he wants to teach them something about resurrection. He quickly handles the marriage question and moves on to their disbelief of the power of God in the resurrection. No one's going to be her husband is his answer. There will be no husband-wife relationship in heaven as it is now. According to Jesus, who is the author of everything, including marriage, the resurrection, and all of truth, so Jesus has the authority to speak into this, there will be no marriage in heaven. It's a truth bomb for everybody, right? There will be no marriage in heaven. It says this, you will not be given in marriage, but will be like angels in heaven. This means that you will live without an exclusive lifelong marriage commitment to a person that you are married to on this side, okay? Since there was no marriage in heaven, the Sadducees' question was invalid. Um, There's these internet memes that go around, and it's like a picture of, like, Chuck Norris riding a unicorn, spearing a massive narwhal with, um, you know, I don't know, something. It's completely absurd, the image. And it said, Chuck Norris on unicorn, your logic is invalid, because it makes no sense. What they said made no sense. Therefore, Jesus was saying, your logic is invalid. Your question makes no sense. We're just going to pretend that never happened for the sake of your own sanity and those around you. We will stop embarrassing you by talking about how your question was dumb and your premise is incorrect. So he moves on uh, to talk about the resurrection. But before I move on to talk about the resurrection, I want to handle one thing. Um, This idea about not being married in the resurrection. It's a disturbing concept to people on this side of the resurrection because we are married and are given in marriage and we love our spouses. And so we want to have that kind of same relationship afterwards. We look forward to the day when we see our spouse on the other side if they pass before us. And we long for that, to have that relationship with them again. And it's something that we hold on to in comfort. And Jesus wants us to have a knowledge and a knowledge of what he's trying to say here. Um, People will know each other in heaven, okay, and will have the joy of close love and relationship in heaven, but it will be more than it is on earth. Here's what it says in Matthew 11. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. When we get to heaven, it's not like I'll be like, whoa, who are you? I've never met you before to my wife, okay? I will know Shelly when we get to the kingdom of heaven, okay? But we will not have that same kind of relationship as we have now. Um, Jesus' reference to the power of God in this verse uh, implies that God is able to establish relationships that are even deeper than what our marriage relationship is now. That our friendship will be deeper, our joy will be deeper, love will be deeper and more fulfilling in the kingdom of God in the resurrection. This idea that he has the ability to create relationships that go beyond what we know now, if we long for our marriage relationship, multiply that times infinity, and the relationship and experience that we have in heaven will be far greater. That combined with this verse in Ephesians, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. Likewise, husbands, love your, love your wife as Christ loves the church giving himself up for her. That's what Christ did for the church. Um, Paul is saying, listen, um, the, the marriage that we have is a picture of something 
to point us to something that is better than what we have now. This leads us to the conclusion that God's primary purpose for marriage is to paint a picture on earth of what the heavenly marriage between the Messiah and the church will look like. We are to experience marriage relationships so that we can understand and love and serve one another like Christ is loving and serving the church and how he will one day come back for her. And we talked about that a little bit last week. The actual marriage of Christ and the church will take place in heaven. And when it does, there will be no more need for human marriage because the event that it's pointing to will have occurred. Does that make sense? The human marriage will be displaced by a greater reality that it pointed to while we were on earth. We have husband and wife now, but that relationship is designed to point us to the marriage of church and Jesus. And when that happens, we don't need a shadow of that because we will be living in the fullness of the glory of Christ. Um, If that brings up more questions in your heart and mind, again, I'd love to discuss that further with you. Um, But the important part here is that marriage is not something that he's cruelly taking away from us. It's something as a gift that he's given us to show us how great it can be in the future. Uh, We get a taste of it here in marriage. So the Sadducees were short-sighted, thinking that what we see now, what we feel now, what we experience now is the greatest that it will ever be, simply because they didn't understand that God can do something greater than our own reality. And their denial of the resurrection was not just a theological position on the resurrection. It was outright disbelief that God can do what he says he's going to do. Um, So Jesus delivered them a rebuke. You don't know scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You are the teachers of Israel. You should know better. You have judicial and religious authority over the people. How can you not know the scriptures? How can you not lead people to truth to the scripture that has been there all along? You should know better. You should believe by now. In fact, Jesus challenged his accountability here um, because he quoted uh, in this passage, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's a quote from the Pentateuch. One of the five books that the Sadducees held to that said these are the only five books we believe that God speaks to us from. So Jesus said, well, if those are the only five books you're going to listen to, allow me to prove to you how the resurrection is contained in those five books. So he says this, do you remember when God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob? Now, when God said that to Moses, if you don't know your order of scriptures, um, that was centuries after the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, when God was talking with Moses, he used the present tense. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob. No, he says, I currently am the God of Abraham. I currently am the God of Isaac. I currently am the God of Jacob. He was saying, present tense, centuries after those men had died, God was saying, I'm still the God of them because they're still in covenant relationship with me, alive and well with me, even though physically they have been dead for centuries. They had been resurrected to new life 
God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And Jesus was trying to show the Sadducees they did not to be sad anymore because there was resurrection and it was contained in the five books that they held to. If the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, imply that the, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith are still alive through the resurrection, then the Sadducees need to recognize God's power to raise the patriarchs and all of God's people to enjoy his eternal covenant in life beyond this one. When the crowds heard this, it said they were astonished at this truth. The fact that not only did the Pentateuch talk about the resurrection, but we're going to see this morning that the rest of the Old Testament points to it as well, as does the New Testament, that this resurrection is not something for the people that have gone before us, but it's something that we can experience in our life right now and that we will experience in the life to come when we pass on. Um, the crowd mind was blown when Jesus said the resurrection is real and it's for everybody. You can have it now and you will have it later. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. What are we supposed to take away from this? This is a weird story with a rebuke to a group of people that we are not. But we need to hear the rebuke that Jesus gave the Sadducees. We are often wrong about God about theology, about how we live life and how God lives life with us. We are often wrong because we don't fully understand the scriptures and we don't really know and believe in the power of God in our life. We don't know and we don't believe. We get scared of a topic so we don't engage it. And Jesus says, you need to know and believe. The resurrection is a promise from God that one day all who have trusted in Christ will be given new life. New life restorative life, and that one day all of the brokenness, the sadness, the painful things are going to pass away from us, and death will not hold us because Christ will raise us up. It's a promise that the death penalty for our sin will not hold us any longer and will not separate us from God, and we need saving from death, and the only thing that saves us from death is the resurrection that Christ's offering. This is the hope that we have. We need to know that God points us to the resurrection. It's not just that one verse in the Pentateuch. Um, this is such an important promise from God to us that it's written everywhere in here, from top to bottom, Old Testament to New Testament, verse after verse after verse after verse. God puts references to the resurrection in here. I'm going to give you five that range from the Old Testament to the New Testament so that you get an idea. Every single reference about the resurrection is pointing us to the ultimate resurrection of Jesus Christ from the cross and the grave and the hope of our resurrection because of that. So, Job 19:25, For I know that my Redeemer lives. If I didn't tell you that was from Job, would you think that was Old Testament or New Testament? Right? Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. The one who is going to save me from my sins, I know that he's alive. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. This is not some sort of zombie apocalypse, okay? This is the idea that we will be resurrected in a physical form, albeit probably altered than what it is now. Our dead will live, our bodies will raise. That was from Isaiah. That was a prophecy, okay? Then Daniel, chapter 12, 
and many of those who sleep, i.e. who are dead, in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Here's the idea that in the resurrection, not all people will be in glory with Jesus forever. There is a choice that we must make on this side of life that then determines our eternal destiny, either to uh, everlasting life or everlasting contempt apart from Christ. How about some New Testament stuff? John chapter 5. The hour is coming when those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, some to life and some to judgment. That sounds like what I just read from Daniel, doesn't it? It's the same kind of verse, only it's in the New Testament. God, uh, God wants us to reiterate these things in our mind and heart. Oh, that sounds familiar. Oh, I've heard that before. That was in the Old Testament, and now it's in the New Testament. Wait a minute. The Old Testament and in the New Testament say the same thing about Jesus? Yes. Every single time. Here's the last one in John 11. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he dies, will live. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus says. He's asking the question. He's saying, listen, I am the resurrection. I will do this. I am the life. I'm the one who gives you life. If you believe in me and follow me, you will have life and resurrection. And then he challenges you. Do you know it? Do you believe it? It's not enough to intellectually go, yes, I can understand that these words say these things and these words mean these things. But if you do not take that knowledge and apply it to your heart and life, when you are raised, it might not be to everlasting joy in the presence of the Father. God gives us tangible examples in Scripture, okay? Um, If you are taking notes, I'm just going to put this next slide up on the board. You can write them all down. I'm going to explain them to you. But, okay, I needed to give you some tangible examples that the resurrection happened before, okay? And it will happen again. Pop quiz. To the best of your knowledge, how many times were people raised from the dead in Scripture? Three. I see a three. Five. Okay. Four, five. I don't knows. Okay. Would it shock you to learn 10? Okay? If you count Jesus, 10. 9 if you don't count Jesus. But we'll count Jesus because he's important to us. 10 if you count Jesus. Let me walk you through them. Here are the references, okay? And I'm starting here and working my way down and then going this way, okay? 1 Kings 17. Elijah raised the son of Zarephath, the widow, from the dead. The women, the mistress of the house, became ill. Uh, the son of the mistress of the house became ill. His illness was so severe that he died. And she said to Elijah, why did you bring this against my house? Because he had come to visit her. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms, carried her to the upper chamber, laid him down on the bed and cried out to God, O Lord, my God, why have you brought calamity on the woman who has helped me? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, Lord, let this child's life come back again. Lord, let this child's life come back again. Lord, let this child's life come back again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life came back to the child, and he was revived. This is the first instance in Scripture where someone came back from the dead. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha, okay, we had Elijah, now we have Elisha, raised the son of the Shumanite woman from the dead. Again, another child lying on a deathbed. He went in and he shut the door behind and he prayed to God. 
And he, he basically, this is like the first CPR, put his mouth on the boy's mouth and his eyes on the boy's eyes and his hands on the boy's hands, and he stretched himself upon him, and he prayed, and he walked back and forth, and he stretched himself upon the boy, and then the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes, and his life came back. I think that's an interesting story. Why seven sneezes? I don't know. Uh, but God revived that child. Second Kings chapter 13 a man was raised from the dead when his body simply touched Elisha's bones. Elisha died and they buried him. And then some people came and invaded. And then as a man was being buried after the invasion, uh, behold, um, a man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the dead man touched the, the bones of Elisha, God healed him, restored him to life. I wouldn't want to wake up there, but I'd be glad for my life, okay? Jesus raised the son of the widow Nain from the dead. In Luke 7, he went to a town called Nain. The crowds went with him. Uh, a great crowd drew near the gate, and behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Jesus intersected a funeral is basically what happened. He was the only son of his mother. She was a widow. That's a bad place to be in that day and age for a woman. She had no one to provide for her. A considerable crowd from the town was with her. Jesus saw her, had compassion on her, and said, Don't weep. He came up. Touched the coffin, as it were, in that day and said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mom. Then Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus, again, another ill child. Um, and Jesus and everyone, uh, they came to him and everyone was weeping. And Jesus said, Don't weep. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Because Jesus is the Lord over all things. And he says to this, this situation to me is like sleep. I can wake this child up. They all laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus because they knew she was dead. It would probably been a day or two. But he took her by the hand and he said, child, arise, wake up. Now give her something to eat because she's hungry. She's been back from death. That's a journey. The child is now back. Then the one you probably were thinking of, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? John chapter 11, we know this story. He intentionally delayed his arrival. He showed up after Lazarus died, buried in the tomb several days, stinky and bad. And he said, peel back the stone. And they're like, mm -mm, it's not going to smell good. And he said, do it anyway. And so he walked in and he said to Mary, did I not tell you that if you believe, not just know, but if you believe, that you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus said, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people who are standing around me, that they may know and believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out alive again. And then we know the resurrection of Jesus from the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know you're seeking Jesus, but he's not here because he's risen from the dead. So go tell everyone you know that Jesus is alive. And then at the, at the uh, crucifixion of Jesus, when Jesus died, this is one of those passages that pastors avoid. When Jesus died, Matthew chapter 27, it says the tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wow. Can you imagine? All of the people that had gone before you, suddenly the street is filled with people who had been dead for generations and are now raised to new life 
because Jesus was raised to new life. Last but not least, Acts chapter, uh, oh, I guess second to least, uh, Acts chapter 9, um, uh, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Oh, unfortunate name. Um, every time I read that, I feel bad. Um, Peter, Peter raised uh, Dorcas from the dead, and she was full of good works and charity, but then she became ill and died. They called Jesus, or they called Peter to them, and Peter put everyone outside and prayed and said, be raised from the dead. And she was raised from the dead. So it happened before Jesus. It happened during Jesus' ministry. It happened after Jesus went up to heaven. And here's the last one. Acts chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. And a young man named Eutychus was sitting at a window. (laughs) Uh, As a preacher, I love this story. He was sitting in a window, and he fell into a deep sleep. He was actually sleeping. This doesn't mean death. He fell asleep because Paul was preaching longer and longer. And being overcome by his sleep, he fell down from the third story of the window and died. (laughs) Uh, But Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms and said, don't be alarmed. He's going to be okay. And brought him back from the dead. (laughs) I I love that story so much. Um, I hope I never preach like that, okay? Uh, um, So Peter preached so long, or Paul preached so long that it killed someone. Then he... Brought that person back from the dead because, oops, you don't want to do that when you're preaching. Okay? Here's the thing. Ten instances in Scripture where people, by name, we can identify, have been raised from the dead. There's one more resurrection that's going to happen. It's the one at the end of time. And here's the thing. God wants to do this for you. We read and we laugh about some of these stories because they seem a little awkward culturally to us about stretching ourselves out over a dead person. We don't do that in our culture, okay? Other cultures do. We don't, so that seems a little off base for us. Uh, People falling out of windows and dying and being brought back to life, okay? Jesus intentionally delaying an arrival so that the glory of God can be made known through the resurrection of Lazarus. We hear about these things and we read about them and we know about them, but do we believe that this is something that God will actually do for us? Do we believe that this is a reality for our own life? What strikes me about all of the Old Testament accounts is that they point to the Jesus who was to come, right? These events give a taste of what was coming in the resurrection of Jesus. And all of the New Testament accounts point to Jesus who is to come again, who is to quicken our hearts for him in glory. And all of it, is to show the glory and the power of God over his creation and the authority by which Jesus himself will be physically raised from death. But the resurrection is not just about the physical body, it's about the spiritual body, okay? We know we live in a world steeped in death, right? Death is the consequence of sin, and the world around us is dying. And frankly, some people around us are dead. They walk around as if in a graveyard. This is Uh, Some imagery from scripture that I'm not just making up. In the Old Testament, it talks about walking around like in a graveyard. The people around us are dead. They have no life in them. They don't have hope. They don't know God. It's like being in a graveyard with a bunch of dead people. And we need to be aware of some facts. We can't raise ourselves from the dead, right? We can't do it. It's not going to happen when we're dead. We don't have any more ability to do anything than if we were alive. We cannot raise our families from the dead. There is nothing we can do for our families in that context. We, as pastors, I cannot raise my flock from the dead. Okay, I cannot do it. There is nothing in me that can do that. That instance where Paul did it is totally cool to me. 
I can't do that unless God would empower that in that moment. The resurrection of the body and the soul are for Jesus and Jesus alone to do. And yet, we are called to be recipients of God's resurrecting works and participants in the resurrected kingdom through the blood of Jesus now and later. Okay? We can live the resurrection now and we will experience it in fullness later. Only Jesus, who can speak life into nothingness and create something out of nothing, can reach into death, undo its grasp on the heart and soul and body, and bring that person back out. The only way he can do that is because he went there first and did it first. Um, At District Assembly two years ago, uh, they had a a little, uh, like a Safeway bag, like you get your groceries in, a little plastic bag, and it was filled with just crinkled up paper. And he held it up, and it was kind of full, and he said, this... Um, is death, and all of the people that have died are in death. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, what he did was, and then the guy opened the bag a little bit so he could get his hand in there, and he, with such force, he punched a hole through the bottom of the bag and ripped the bag open. And he said what Jesus did for us was enter through death and pass through it and punch a hole out the other side, leading the captives free. Death doesn't hold Jesus, and it doesn't hold us. And I love that imagery. It was just really vivid as these crumpled up papers went flying across the front of the room. That's what Jesus does for us. Only Jesus can reach through death and save us from it. I want us to read some verses this morning. Colossians 2, 13. Even though you were dead in your sins, living without relationship to God, God made you alive with him. And he forgave all your sins. We don't deserve this. And let me be very clear. This is not something that we deserve. We can't earn this. There's no reason that we deserve life with God. But God loves us. He forgave your sins. And he gave you life instead of death. And it's the best possible switch ever, right? It's totally awesome for our side of things. God has forgiven all of your sins through his death on the cross... And he's done it while you are still alive so that you can glorify him and have relationship with him now. That's part of the resurrection promise. That you are resurrected from your life without relationship to him into life with relationship with him. You were once dead walking around like a zombie, no, um, no hope for resurrection like the Sadducees, okay? And then God gave you life, new life in your heart and it springs up and wells up. You are living in the resurrection right now if you have trusted in Christ. Second verse, Philippians 3.9. This is a snippet. Let me read the whole thing. Be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might share his sufferings, And become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul saying, I I know that Christ has forgiven me of my sins, like it says in Colossians. I know that I've been made alive with him, but now my knowledge is going to become belief because I'm going to put action to it. And I'm going to live in such a way that I live in the resurrection. 
that I suffer for God, that I work for God, because I recognize it comes not from me, but from Him. It's not by our own works that we are saved from death and sin, but through Christ. It is not what you do, but what was done for you that matters. And this salvation and hope only comes through Jesus. Here's that last verse, Romans 8. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, He who raised Jesus will also give you life. This is looking ahead. So we've looked at the life that we have in Christ now, the new life, but we will have life in front of us in the kingdom um, that is unparalleled to the life that we have now. It will look probably nothing like the life we have now because God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth and it will be amazing if you have confessed with your mouth okay, and believed with your heart, if you know okay, and you believe that Jesus is Lord, then he is inside of your heart and you have the promise of the resurrection from the dead. Death will not hold you. When you pass away from this world, you will be raised to everlasting life, everlasting joy, continually in the presence of God. God is willing and able to save you from the death that is sin and the second death that is life without him forever and ever. If you will but love and follow him, trust in him, know and believe. And so the question that you must ask yourself this morning is, do you know and do you believe? And both of those must be answered in your heart this morning. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. And then we're going to spend some time in worship. Lord, we've read your word. We've read a lot of your word this morning. Frankly, it was probably more your... It says in scripture that the angels sing that continuously before the throne. Forever and ever and ever they sing that before the throne. And here's a little picture of what that might look like. So take this as the benediction this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven just for you, who by God's power you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the resurrection. In this, you will rejoice. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go and live in the resurrection today. Look for it in the days to come.